everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nathan, and this episode is part of our professor series. Today, we're sitting down with Professor Kenneth P. Miller, the Rose Associate Professor of State and Local Government at Claremont McKenna College, co-director of the Dryer Roundtable, and the director of CMC's Rose Institute of State and Local Government. Miller is an expert on American politics, California politics, and constitutional law. He holds a bachelor's degree from Pomona College, a law degree from Harvard Law School, and a doctorate from the University of California at Berkeley. Before his academic career, he worked in the Washington DC office of Congressman David Dreyer, and in the Sacramento office of California State Senator Rebecca Q. Morgan. He also practiced law with Morrison Forster LLP, where he specialized in civil litigation, administrative law, and legislative advocacy. His most recent book, Texas versus California, a history of the struggle for the future of America, explores why the nation's two largest states have polarized politically and how they have assumed leadership of the nation's red and blue state blocks. Thank you for joining us, Professor Miller. Uh, Nathan, it's a pleasure to be here. Look forward to our conversation. So, Professor, I'd like to start by asking if you could describe a time of significant change uh, and inflection point in your personal life, your professional life, or both. Uh, sure. So I could um, give a little context. So I, I was an undergraduate at Pomona, as you mentioned, and went straight on to law school right after college. I was a government major at uh, Pomona and pre-law and went, uh, didn't take any time off, went straight to law school. And um, actually my first year after law school, I, I worked in the state legislature for uh, Senator Rebecca Morgan from Northern California. Uh, but that was always um, in my plan to be a, a temporary detour from the practice of law. And uh, so I went to I work for a, a big corporate law firm. And my expectation was that I was going to be uh, a lawyer for my career. And uh, that's the way I got started. And I was into it about three or four years when I decided uh, to do a reassessment. And at that point, uh, I, I, I knew pretty well that I didn't want to do corporate law forever. And I started looking around at some other options and ultimately landed on going back to school, which was kind of a, a, a kind of a radical turning point or inflection point, as you might say, and uh, went back and got a PhD in political science at UC Berkeley, which uh, put me on the course that led me to where I am now, which is uh, a professor of government here at CMC. So that was uh, a major, uh, uh, I guess, career and life uh, uh, change for me. So what drew you to actually teach uh, the topics of government, constitutional law, and American politics? Well, I'd, I'd always, from an early age, from uh, my childhood, been interested and drawn to politics. I was one of those nerdy kids who uh, read the newspaper every day and, and followed the news and had always been kind of a political junkie. Uh, when I was an undergraduate at Pomona, I did the CMC Washington program. That's where I intern for David Dreyer, who was a CMC alum and represented uh, the Claremont um, in Congress and was always really interested in, in politics. And uh, also uh, I come from a, a line of lawyers. My dad's a lawyer, my grandfather was a lawyer. And so I was pre-law. And so those topics always interest me, politics and law. And when I decided to get into acad academia, those were the 
the subject matter areas that I focused on, um, American politics, state level politics, and uh, law. And in uh, especially in uh, undergraduate liberal arts colleges, um, most study of law is in the area of constitutional law, and that's always been an interest of mine. So that's one of the courses I teach is uh, courses in constitutional law, plus American politics and um, California state politics is an area of particular interest. Uh, I first really became interested in that when I worked in the state legislature for a year after law school. And speaking about um, the state legislature experience, um, do you have maybe any stories from there that you'd care to share, just like um, anything that comes to mind of particular significance? Um, yeah, so it was it was an interesting time. It was um, during the speakership of Willie Brown, um, who's now a historical figure, um, still alive. He was a longtime speaker of the California Assembly, very uh, interesting political figure, also had uh, a close relationship with our current uh, Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, who was sort of a, a mentor and a uh, close uh, relationship with her, uh, a, a larger than life figure. So when I was in the legislature, uh, it was fascinating to sort of watch him operate. And we had an opportunity as a member of the fellows class, so I was part of the Senate fellows programs and all the fellowship programs up there, had an opportunity to meet with the, the legislative leaders. And I really, um, had a striking memory of um, getting to know Willie Brown in, in that context. It was shortly thereafter that term limits were passed and he was uh, removed from office through term limits um, and became uh, later mayor of San Francisco. But that was, I, I think, uh, a defining sort of uh, presence during my time in Sacramento was uh, uh, assembly member uh, speaker, Willie Brown. And so now going back to um, your time spent at Pomona. Um, so I'd like to kind of speak about that. Uh, so you were a student at Pomona and now you're a professor at Claremont McKenna. And it's kind of well known that the two schools have um, pretty outspoken rivalry. So has there been a shift in how you perceive the rivalry since you're now a professor at, once was, at what was once your rival school? Yeah, so um, I, I get the rivalry. I, I appreciate it. I, I didn't play uh, intercollegiate sports. I think for people who play sports, probably the rivalry is, is the, even more intense. And in a way, I thought, my, thought of myself as being a student at, at both places because I was obviously a student at Pomona, but I, I did the Washington program and I took some other classes uh, uh, at CMC and the other Claremont colleges. So I really loved the consortium and the idea that um, you were really located in one college but had opportunities to cross over to the other schools. And there was always something about CMC that attracted me. Um, and so when uh, later on, when I had finished my PhD program and was on the job market looking for a job and a job came open at CMC, that was absolutely a dream job for me because I just, I knew the Claremont colleges, I knew CMC, I knew the value of you know, high-end liberal arts education. And I always liked the applied, um, uh, sort of feature of the CMC education that is both sort of uh, theory and uh, you know a deep uh, liberal arts education, but also has a, a practical application. And uh, there's a really you know outstanding government department at CMC. So becoming part of that was um, sort of a dream job for me. And uh, being back in Claremont, you know, I, I 
um, now identify, I would say, more with CMC than with Pomona. But I, I you know, have a close uh, uh, connection and affection for Pomona as well. So it definitely seems to me like CMC ended up winning that rivalry in the end. Um, yes, I've, I've crossed over 6th Street. I'm now, my allegiance is now with CMC, I'd have to say. Right. Yes. Um, so speaking of opportunities at CMC, uh, as the director of the Rose Institute at CMC, how do you view the role of this institute on campus in shaping interest and developing students' engagement with civic duties and applying the classroom to the real world? Yeah, so I'll, I'm happy to talk about the Rose Institute. And um, just as a small point of clarification, I'm, I'm currently the associate director, but have been appointed to be the, the next director beginning uh, July of this year succeeding uh, my good friend, Professor Bush, who's been the director for the last 10 years, and I've been the associate director under, uh, under his leadership. And the, the Rose Institute is now two years short of uh, its 50th anniversary. It's been um, a major presence at CMC uh, for nearly half a century. Uh, it was a big player when I was a, a student uh, back in the 1980s. It had been involved in uh, major uh, debates in California about redistricting and the proper way to draw district lines in the state. Um, it had gained national uh, notoriety and, and prominence during that time. And over the course of its history, it sort of evolved and has taken on um, sort of uh, new uh, areas of focus and mission. And so I've been um, really thrilled to be able to be a part of that over the course of the last decade at, at CMC. It's a great place for students who are interested in practical politics and policy to be able to do real research with faculty members and also um, sometimes with governments and other organizations out there in the community who hire the Rose Institute to do analyses for them. Um, we're also really involved in um, public education through things like our video voter program every election cycle, um, giving voters uh, accessible nonpartisan information about uh, ballot propositions here in California. And so there's a lot of very close um, uh, collaborative work between faculty and students on these uh, really quite interesting topics of politics and policy in California and uh, opportunities for students to do both independent research and, and research uh, with faculty. And so um, I think it's really a gem of, of the college and it's been great to be part of it. For sure. And so now I'd like to um, shift the conversation over to your book since we were speaking of research. So uh, I'd first like to ask, what was the deciding factor that made you want to write a book comparing Texas to California? Yeah, so th this is one of the things that faculty members do is we write books. Um, and this is my second single author book. I've also um, co-authored or collaborated on other books as well. And um, it, it took quite a long time to sort of um, bring it from con original conception to completion. It was just published last summer. Um, I spent a sabbatical year in Texas in 2017, 2018, doing research on the book. Um, but I, I had started thinking about it even before then. Um, so why Texas versus California? I've, I've uh, been involved in California politics and taught California politics for a long time. And so that's my sort of primary area of uh, intellectual and academic focus. And I've written other books and, and articles about California. But uh, one of the things about the state of California is that it has 
um, shifted um, significantly over the last generation from being sort of a, a purple or competitive two-party state to being an overwhelmingly uh, democratic state, um, along with a lot of other states in the United States through this broader process of polarization. And I'm, I'm fascinated by how polarization has operated and how it affects our institutions and politics nationally. And I think the states um, can, can show in a unique way how polarization and sorting has operated. So um, the best way from my perspective to show that was to compare California, which has now become the leader of the blue states in the United States and sort of a model of progressive politics with its sort of counterpart, the second largest state in the nation, Texas, which has become increasingly Republican and red and has become sort of the model of conservative uh, politics in the United States. So it was a natural comparison between these two uh, important rivals. And it so it had sort of a dramatic um, framing to it. And the more I dug into it, the more fascinated I was by the sort of the uh, stark opposition of these two states on many areas of contemporary uh, policy contestation. So uh, the book talks about how the, the two states separated in the first place, um, um, became red and blue and became political rivals. And then the second part of the book looks at the implications of that for uh, in various different policy areas. And in the preface of your book, you discuss the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic and the initial steps that Texas and California took to halt the spread of the virus. And so now, nearly a year later, and with the daily vaccine rates in the US averaging at about 2 million a day, uh, were you surprised about any policies that Texas or California implemented relating to the pandemic? Um, I guess I wouldn't be say I was surprised about the policies. Um, in, in many ways, the two states uh, you know, reverted to type with respect to their uh, approaches to the pandemic, which is to say that California was much more comfortable with government intervention and regulation. So mask mandates and um, stay-at-home orders and that sort of thing. Texas did some of that, but it did so later and it lifted them earlier. So this, this week, Governor Greg Abbott has lifted all mask mandates and uh, uh, limitations on um, businesses and, and such. And so in many ways, uh, the, the themes I'm describing in the book help explain why uh, California and Texas approached the pandemic the ways they did and why red and blue states did. Uh, if, if I were to say I'm surprised, I guess I'm a little bit surprised by um, the uh, difficulty California had even using uh, much more aggressive um, responses to the pandemic, uh, the difficulty it had in, in limiting uh, the spread of the virus. So if you look at the case rates and even the death rates in the two states, they're not um, radically different. Texas had slightly higher per capita uh, uh, infection and uh, death rates, but not um, dramatically so, even though they were much uh, maintained much more openness uh, during the course of, of the pandemic. So. Um, in some ways, Californians, I think, have felt like they're living in the worst of two worlds, that they have to live with the consequences of the, of the shutdown, like closed K-12 schools and um, a lot of businesses going under because of closures and um, a lot of the sort of social costs of COVID response at the same time, not really getting the um, 
a substantial benefit in terms of reduced um, uh, infection and death rates. And would there be any advice you would give to the political leaders of California or Texas? Uh, well, I, I guess the book kind of um, does that in a general way. Um, uh, you know, most of the book is describing the differences in the conflict between the two states. And uh, one of the conclusions is that, you know, there are things that uh, both sides of our political divide can le learn from the other if we sort of get out of our uh, political entrenchment, uh, the polarized entrenchment. And so um, I think that, for example, California could learn some things from Texas about being more uh, friendly uh, to business and thinking about uh, how, it, how is it that Texas has been so successful in um, new business formation and, um, uh, you know, and business growth um, uh, especially in sectors where California has struggled. At the same time, Texas, I think, could uh, learn a lot from California in terms of uh, some really strategic public investments in healthcare and in, in some other ways. I think uh, Texas, a lot of people in Texas think that its model is unsustainable with respect to certain um, necessary and critical public expenditures that, that Texas just isn't making. So, um, you know, I guess I would position myself somewhere between the two models and say that there are things that can be uh, potentially learned from both. Um, on the other hand, the book also underscores the fact that you can't sort of uh, do a, a pure hybrid of the two models, which is to say, um, you know, a lot of people would like to have the low taxes of Texas and the high spending of California, and you, you can't have both of those things. You have to sort of make trade-offs and choices between the two models. And um, I guess the last thing I would say is that, you know, one of the advantages of a federal system like ours is that individual states get to make some, um, some choices and set priorities that more align with their polit underlying political culture. So I'm not troubled necessarily by difference between the states. Um, the one difficulty is if we become so polarized that we're not able to sort of uh, coexist within the federal system. And how did your time spent as a visiting fellow at SMU, which um, is located in Dallas, Texas, influence your book? Yeah, um, I should have said this earlier when you were asking about why, why I wrote the book. Um, part of the reason was, and I think I even mentioned this in the, in the uh, introduction to the book, is that a decade ago, um, I got married to a native Texan and her family, uh, my wife's family, uh, many of them live in and around Dallas. And so part of that sabbatical year was an opportunity for uh, her to reconnect with those folks and me to get to know them better. And they also provided me like a, an outstanding introduction to Texas. Now I'm, I'm a native Californian, I'm fifth generation California actually. And so I, you know, I feel like I understand California sort of in my bones. I didn't know much about Texas at all. Right. And so it was really beneficial to get to receive a sabbatical, a year long sabbatical from CMC. This is part of what professors do is, you know, they, they take sabbaticals from time to time. And this one was really an important one for me because I was able uh, to spend that year both with family and with uh, scholars in Texas. And we traveled around the state. I went to the state capitol and interviewed the speaker of the state house representatives there. Um, and other political figures. 
and really got a, a year-long immersion in Texas. And that allowed me, I think, to write more um, knowledgeably uh, and with greater nuance and understanding about Texas when I'm trying to compare it to a state that I knew much better going in, which was California. And now to go back a bit more to um, your actual career teaching. Um, working in politics definitely seems to be a sticky business, I'd say. Uh, so how would you navigate the dynamics with your fellow professors with whom you may share different views on certain policies or opinions? Yeah, so I, mean, I, I think that's one of the, actually the great things about CMC is that there is uh, a fairly broad uh, spectrum of political viewpoint on the faculty. Um, I, I think probably now the faculty has a little bit more uh, viewpoint diversity than the student body. That wasn't always the case. The student body uh, used to be a little bit more diverse than it is now. But the, the faculty, I would say, still has a, a substantial amount of diversity, and that can lead to disagreement. And part of you know, um, what we try to model um, as faculty members in this, in this um, culture in which we live, this polarized culture, is how can we talk about difference or, or have meaningful discussion across difference. So with people who have uh, you know, quite different viewpoints. Um, I, I would also like to credit um, President Shodosh on this because I think he's been uh, quite good in really emphasizing reinforcing the notion of the open academy and the idea that um, a, a university or a college um, is really the primary place in a society where there should be um, the free exchange of ideas and the testing out of ideas against each other and the free marketplace of ideas. And that re really requires people to be able to um, listen to ideas that they don't necessarily agree with and uh, you know, engage respectfully. You, know, you, you, you wanna be able to voice your opinions and, um, and uh, express difference but do so in a respectful way. And so to my mind, CMC is one of the best places in the country for doing that. And that's one of the reasons I really love being a professor here is that I can engage with colleagues on um, you know, difficult matters of politics and policy and life uh, across difference and still uh, maintain uh, respect. Great. And just as a follow-up to that, um, how do you think as an educator, um, you should strive to educate students about these real life topics uh, without being too focused on the course materials itself and to actually develop those life skills? Yeah, um, so if I, I think I'm getting your question, which is to say that, um, you know, we're, we're doing a whole person education um, in college, to my mind. And we're really trying to form students to be able to think critically and engage, uh, you know, current events, but also do it in a way that has, um, you know, some intellectual framework behind it or context. And that's why students, you know, we encourage and require students to do some work in history or uh, philosophy or, or the liberal arts generally, because it provides you sort of uh, a way of thinking more broadly about our world and current events than if you were just sort of narrowly focused on um, the present time, presentism, right? And so 
that's part of what we offer, but we also, again, this is one of the, the great genius things about uh, the mission of CMC is that we try to um, have opportunities for application of scholarship to real world problems. It's often through the institutes like the Rose Institute or internships, we really emphasize the students get internships uh, either during the school year or during the summers. And so um, trying to build education in the classroom, but also provide opportunities for, uh, you know, learning in applied settings as well. Great. And just to continue on the topic of the classroom itself, uh, we all know that uh, the digital world has really consumed our lives exponentially in the past year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so with that in mind, are there um, possibly any silver linings to it? Are there any aspects of the online learning environment that you prefer over the in-person uh, teaching environment? Hmm. Um, it's a great question. I think it's, you know, unquestionably a, a, a net um, negative um, not being able to be in person with uh, you and the other students that I've uh, come to know at, at CMC over over time, and and the ones that are uh, new students that I've never got to meet in person at all. I taught Gov 20 last uh, semester, and most of my students were uh, first year students, and I have never met them in person yet, <laughs> which is kind of a strange thing, um, considering how intensely residential and in-person in uh, liberal arts colleges are generally, that we have a lot of interaction both in the classroom and outside the classroom, in the dining hall and in office hours and such. So um, I very much look forward to the day when we can all be back on campus. That being said, I'm, I, um, I really don't know how we could have done this two decades ago or even a decade ago before there was the technology that allowed for this kind of uh, in-person interaction, uh, even through the medium of the computer screen. And um, you know, I, I think that the you know it's 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 not as good, but it's it's a pretty close second in terms of the ability to communicate, to hold a class, to do discussions, that kind of thing. I think the academic dimension of our year in the pandemic has been pretty good that I think the normal types of things that I would normally do in a class, I've mostly been able to do. Um, there are some things, however, that again, I, I haven't been able to do, which is to say things like when I teach California politics, I usually take the class up to Sacramento for a two day uh, intensive uh, series of discussions with uh, legislators and members of the governor's office, the governor's staff, uh, lobbyists, journalists, and such. And I'm, just, I'm not able to do that in, in pandemic settings. So on the other hand, it is possible to get some speakers onto campus that might otherwise not be able to um, come to Claremont, um, people from the East Coast or internationally. And so um, I think the Athenaeum has actually done a, a quite good program this year um, online. And so uh, we're all adapting, we're doing our best. And I think in some ways, um, you know, we're going to emerge from this year thinking more creatively about how to do some sort of hybrid between in-person and um, online. If you could recommend one book to all of our listeners, is there one that has influenced you the most in your personal life or your professional career? Uh, it's, it's a great question. Um, one that's influenced me professionally recently um, it's actually not one book, it's an eight volume history of California 
by a, a terrific historian named Kevin Starr. And it's, um, the series is called Americans in the California Dream. And it's, it's about the history of California from its origins um, all the way up through the 21st century. And I relied a lot on that, um, that series of books uh, in writing my own uh, book about Texas and California. And it's, it's engagingly written and, and fantastic. So anybody interested in that topic, I can um, recommend that. Another one, uh, another book that has been influential for me is uh, by uh, a Harvard professor. His name's Arthur Brooks. He was actually CMC's last commencement speaker back in 2019. And uh, the book is called Love Your Enemies. And it's about how um, to engage constructively across difference um, in this polarized era in which we live. And so I can heartily recommend that book um, as well. Well, those are both some great recommendations, Professor. And in the spirit of students getting to know you better, do you have any song or album recommendations as well? Uh, let me think. Well, um, I, I have this interest in Irish musicians and uh, I've, I've, I've liked the band U2 for, for many years and a guy named Robin Mark, I've been listening to his music recently. And there's also a musician named Van Morrison. He's uh, uh, from Belfast and uh, he recorded a lot of um, songs that I love, including one called, Have I Told You Lately That I Love You, which is uh, a, lovely, a lovely song. So I, I can re recommend uh, his work as well. And just to speak uh, shortly about Irish musicians, um, I personally enjoy the Cranberries. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with with. The I, band. I'm I'm very familiar with them. That's that's great. They're they're great music musicians. A great band as well. Yeah, yes. they're they're definitely great. Um, okay, so unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Professor Miller, for joining us. And to all our listeners, I'll see you in the next episode of Free Food for Thought. Mm -hmm.